this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So if you own a service company, you're probably gonna wanna listen up to this episode. It's with Eric Enga, who built a service company up to 70 employees, $9 million of annual revenue. It was a marketing service business, SEO, content marketing, and the likes. And if you own a service business, you know that while you don't have a lot of hard assets to sell, you do have something of value. And as Eric will tell you, he built a lot of value into his business. He wouldn't tell me exactly how much value he created, how much he sold it for, but I did get out of him that he is going to buy himself a trophy as part of the sale of the company. He's going to go buy a Tesla P100D, which are not cheap. So he must have done okay from the sale. But lots of really interesting stories and lessons here from Eric, uh, in particular around selling a service business. So um, how to think about the earnout was a big part of our conversation. Some things, tips and tricks to avoid in, in, in evaluating your earnout. Some of the disasters to avoid uh, potential legal snafus that you might get into as well. He also tells uh, the story of how he shared the news with his employees. And again, in a service business, you're reliant on your employees really to deliver the service. And that can become uh, a difficult thing to stick handle for entrepreneurs. So he talks about it with candor, how he dealt with that. Also talks about not over playing your hand with buyers. He chose to negotiate exclusively with his acquirer, a public company, um, which he, talk, he talks about some of the benefits and some of the cons, frankly, of doing as well. Uh, here to tell you the rest of the story is Eric Enga. Eric Enga, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. I'm looking forward to this. So tell me about this company, Stone Temple Consulting. I have to ask, as a, a child of the 70s who grew up in the 90s, I remember the band Stone Temple Pilots. So is it any relation to the band? So now you're going to get the story. <laughs> um, so here's how the story goes. I was driving down the road one night and I needed a name for a company, which was just going to be a personal consulting shell because that's all it was at the time. Uh, and I heard a song on the radio and I said, Oh, Stone Temple Pilots. And, and then it triggered something in my brain, which was, you know, I really love Stonehenge and these ancient monuments. Um, and it seemed like a very suitable thing to name the company after. So to me, it's really named after, you know, uh, Stonehenge and those ancient temples from peoples that are 10,000 years ago, you know, built 10,000 years ago or more. Um, and it's fortunate that's what I really named it after because it turns out I was wrong about it being a Stone Temple Pilot song. 
<laughs> Love it. Okay, well, it, it worked out for you, obviously. So what 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 does Stone Temple Consulting do? What what sort of services did you provide? So uh, the the things we're most well known for, well, but the number one thing we're known for is uh, search engine optimization or SEO. Um, uh, where I think we're, we're recognized as being a market leader in that space. Uh, and then uh, content marketing, uh, which actually is a business line, is, is just as large as the SEO business line. Um, and we do that stuff for, you know, well, we've got 15, Fortune 500 level clients. Uh, uh, and then, of course, a bunch of smaller uh, clients as well. Um, but that's what we do. Got it. So a classic sort of marketing services business in a way. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about the business model itself. When I've seen marketing services companies, uh, I used to own one years ago, uh, it was a sort of sort of hybrid of project-based versus hourly billing. Where you Is that the way you were structured or did you have contracts? Or how did you structure your relationship through your clients or how do you structure them? Yeah, so uh, a large percentage of the business comes from uh, uh, really ongoing monthly contracts, fixed retainer kind of model. Um, but we do have a, a material amount that's in time and materials or hourly billing, as you put it. And then, of course, some stuff that comes in just as projects. You know, it's like not meant to be an ongoing thing. It comes in and it goes and it's gone. Um, so really a mix of all three of those models. What proportion of your revenue would, would be sort of recurring in a, in a traditional sense? Um, I mean, I think it's a pretty large percentage of it, you know, 60% or something like that. Wow. Wow. So big chunk. So, I mean, when we were talking offline before I hit record, uh, you'd shared that you had, you had embarked upon some things to help build value into the company. I'd be curious to know what some of those are, because for a lot of people listening, they're like, yeah, some service company. I mean, what, like the assets go up and down as I think it was David Ogilvy originally said, you know, they go up and down the elevator. There's no, no machines to sell. There's no land. There's no property. There's nothing you can put your hands on. So like, what are you selling? How did you build value into this service business? I think the biggest thing we did is we sought, uh, sought out to, or set out, I should say, to establish uh, a really clear thought leadership position. And I know it's a true, uh, an old tired phrase. People hate hearing it, thought leadership. Um, and uh, But the reality is that we pressed very hard at doing that. Um, and that meant a lot of public speaking, a lot of writing uh, articles on major journals that cover the search space. Um, uh, really conducting uh, groundbreaking studies, uh, you know, doing research that no one else was doing and then throwing it out into the wild and just publishing it free of charge, um, not even um, putting it behind and, uh, you know, get an email address kind of um, thing. I mean, just completely open. Um, uh, and, you know, these kinds of things, extremely high level of activity on social media, uh, again, sharing like everywhere and just giving away a ton of expertise on an ongoing basis. And I guess part of the skeptic in me saying, yeah, but aren't you giving away the farm? Like, why would you give away all that value for nothing? Um, because it allowed us to build the company uh, with literally no sales force. 
people would come to us and, and the, the way you became a Stone Temple client is you emailed us, you called us, you reached out on Facebook Messenger or via LinkedIn or walked up to us at a conference or you got referred to us. We had zero outbound sales effort. Fantastic. And, and that, of course, changes the economics of the business. How big did you get Stone Temple before you, choose to, you chose to sell? Like, what was the revenue of the company when you sold it? So, uh, well, I can share what's in the uh, press release that was uh, associated with the, uh, um, the, the sale. And, and, you know, $9 million is, is uh, right around where we were and, uh, and about uh, uh, just shy of 70 people, actually. So you're nine million dollars in revenue, seventy employees. Um, what made you want to sell? Like, what was the trigger that made you want to get out? You know, that proves to be re- relatively simple. Uh, and the basis was that um, I'm a tender young, sixty-one uh, years of age, uh, and I still love what I do every single day. Um, but, uh, I'm also, you know, was recognizing that I wasn't going to be wanting to do this, uh, when I was 70 years old. Uh, and, and sort of that was my point of view on it. And I wanted to be able to go through a transaction when I could be a part of helping it succeed in the new, you know, owner's, uh, hands while still loving doing what I was doing every single day and still being excited about going to work. So the, this is kind of a key thing. And this is one of the things that I would strive to advise other uh, entrepreneurs, you know, that know that they want to sell someday, um, especially if it's a service oriented business. Um, you're going to be far more interesting to acquire if you're going to stay with it and help it succeed. So, think about making the sale before you get to the point where you're bored to tears and desperate to get out because that can put you in a very painful situation. In your case, you were 61. How, or are 61, how how many years were you prepared to work after, after the sale? I, you know, I don't have a specific time horizon in mind, uh, to be honest. I just know that I still uh, love doing what I'm doing and, um, you know, a few years, uh, more, I don't know, but, uh, yeah. Cause a lot of people hear that and say, yeah, but Eric, you, you could have stuck around for another five years if you wanted to, to own this thing, continue to grow it top line, make it more valuable and then, you know, sell to the highest bidder at the end. Um, uh, what was it that got you, your head around I, you know, personally, I think it's 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 very smart and very thoughtful the way you've done it. But it's rare. I think more entrepreneurs are in the camp of like I want to go until I'm done, and then when I'm done, I want out in 30 days. How did you kind of get to the the get yourself mentally to the point where you're prepared to work for the buyer? Yeah, you know, life rarely puts you in a position where you're going to get to the point where you want to be out in 30 days and it's going to work out well for you. It just it's, you know, I mean, the market might not be right. Um, the, uh, uh, the fact that you want to leave will dramatically lessen the, the pool of interested buyers. Everybody wants you to stay on for some period of time. 
Um, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot working against you if that's, you know, again, it's one thing if it's a software company, you transfer it, there's a ton of assets and value in the software, um, uh, and they get valued differently. But as a services company, I mean, they're hiring the people, uh, for the most part, uh, and the, and, and buying the client base, right? So you just have to be prepared that that's what they're thinking. So look at, in my opinion, look at and find what's a, you know, a really good time in the market to make your exit. If you're blessed, find a strategic buyer, uh, you know, one that you're strategic to. And, um, and then, you know, set up a good set of circumstances for yourself. Good. So I want to dig into, into that in specific. So in your case, age of 61, you said, okay, um, you know, now's the right time. I'm prepared to stay on. How did you go about thinking about who the potential acquirers are? Did you ultimately bought, were acquired by a company called Proficient? Um, but I think there's a lot of other potential candidates. How did you, how did you get to Proficient? Did you have a large pool of people you went out to to talk to, and and how did you think about who who would be the most strategic to acquire you guys? Yeah, uh, great question. Actually, I'm going to clarify one other thing first, if you don't mind, which is, uh, by the way, my business partner, uh, who also happens to be my wife, uh, but uh, who's been the COO of the company uh, up until this date, um, was, of course, also uh, 100% involved in this decision process. And I've sort of been speaking my point of view uh but, you know, from her, it was, you know, equally a good time. So just be aware that there was two heads involved in that process. And, uh, um, you know, we kind of um, together came to a conclusion that it might be a pretty good time. But let's let's get back to your uh, immediate question, which, uh, you know, um, so, I mean, I've been getting emails for years from people inquiring about potentially buying Stone Temple and, um, uh, you know, and, and most of them uh, have just been sort of thrown into uh, the trash bin. Uh, and um, the most, this, uh, let's see, when was it? Some Sometime earlier, uh, February, March, somewhere around there, we got an email from uh, um, you know, uh, this company proficient or more precisely, uh, investment banker associated with this, uh, company proficient. Um, and, um, we you know, looked at it and realized that this could be potentially a strategic fit. Why? What, what did, what did you see in proficient that made it strategic? Um, from the uh, you know outside looking in, it looked like a great company, by the way, I still think that now that I'm on the inside looking out. But, you know, just talking about where we were at the time, it looked like a great company. Um, they, uh, they were having a lot of consulting services that they were providing to people out there. Um, but they uh, had a need to strengthen their digital marketing portfolio. And, uh, Proficient is a marketing services company? So, uh, well, they're, they offer IT consulting in a broad range of areas, but they also do some marketing um, services as well. So um, the IT consulting is things like um, 
IBM WebSphere installations and Microsoft installations with things like Office 365 and .NET. And, um, it's uh, interesting because for, for me, I would have thought your natural strategic acquire would have been, you know, some agency holding company that are snapping up SEO marketing services businesses all over the place. Did you consider those and were they on the, the, the long list of potential acquirers? So, well, again, it didn't really quite happen that way, right? We, uh, we had a number of companies coming at us and we, we definitely had companies like that come our way, but it just wasn't something that, um, I, I don't know, the, the people with a long list of uh, holding, the holding companies with a long list of other digital marketing agencies, just where, where's the leverage? They acquire you and you continue to do your own thing and then they just hold you at that point. You're not really getting leverage from other sales forces and other people uh, offering related services where you can make joint offerings together. I, I don't know. That's the way I looked at it. Maybe I looked at it wrong, but... No, it doesn't sound like it, but it, but it does sound unique. What was it, I'd be curious, in that original email from the investment banker representing Proficient that 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 struck a chord with you? Like, what did they say in that email that made you think, oh, well, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't just trash this. Maybe I should actually take this a little more seriously. Well, I mean, I was at a point where I'm not so sure that it was the email as much as, um, uh, you know, Beth, my wife and I had gotten to a point where we, we were, had gotten open to the possibility. So, uh, you know, I looked a little bit more at the emails and in most cases, again, just discarded them as always. But, you know, um, you know, got this one, took a, uh, a bit more of a look at it and said, oh, okay, they, they're actually doing some related things, uh, um, but uh, don't see, you know, much evidence to speak of that they're doing a lot in SEO or anything in content marketing. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, this might be an interesting company of conversation with. So where does it go from there? So, uh, you know, we basically had an initial dialogue uh, uh, with them um, and it, it went well, uh, but then, you know, we didn't hear anything for uh, about it for another month or two. I apologize. I don't remember exactly how long it was, but uh, uh, and then they came back and the conversation got um, involved fairly quickly. <laughs> when you say involved, what do you mean? Well, I, I mean, you know, it's, uh, we got, uh, after the initial conversation, you're kind of waiting for some sign back from them that there's real interest. And they, um, uh, you know, came back and indicated, yeah, there's some real interest. And, um, a lot of entrepreneurs during that, because I, I think that period of time between the initial little dating, oh, I love you, you love me, and then there's this dark silence, right, for a month or two where you know you hear nothing. A lot of entrepreneurs, I think, are tempted to reach back out and say, "Hey, are you still interested? Did you, you know, did you, did you hold back the temptation, or did you resist the temptation to, to sort of see, you know, gauge their interest or or not?" Yeah. Um... I, we weren't really in any hurry. So, um, and there, there's, uh, it's a, a really good thing in sales to have patience working on your side at times. 
Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't know that it was the perfect us being as thoughtful as I'm perhaps suggesting that it was, <laughs> but, but it's like, we were busy and we had other things we were doing and, you know, it's like, uh, working with this client problem, working on that client problem, and they'll come back when they come back. And I know we can't talk about the, the actual sale price, but I'd be curious to know, did you and Beth have a sense of what you thought the company was worth? Did you, did you have sort of a, a guts feel before the, you know, the deal with Proficient turned to numbers? Did you, did you have a sort of sense what it was worth? Well, I mean, I think typically, you know, consulting companies don't get great multiple services companies don't, right? It's not like a software business where you get three, five X revenue or more. I mean, depending on the situation, uh, that's not something that happens, um, uh, with services companies, but, um, you know, and, and those acquisitions are typically viewed as, okay, we're, we're getting the expertise of the workforce and the current customer base and, and maybe there's some other assets involved. Um, so, you know, that kind of guided things. Um, I, I don't want to put a number to it, but, you know, you're not expecting to, you're not even expecting two acts. That's just too high for a services business. It's and just, when you say when you say two X, you're referring to two X revenue, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not what happens. You know, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, in fact, I, you know, I, uh, for a lot of consulting companies, one times revenue would would be considered a, a great result. Yeah, uh, exactly. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm avoiding getting too specific here because I don't want to. That's fine. Uh, yeah, totally. That's uh, that's that's totally fine. Uh, but so so you were you had realistic expectations, I guess, is my point going in. You, you'd sort of done a little bit of work, and you you, you kind of got a sense of what what services companies were were trading at. Mm -hmm. um, tell me tell me more. So so you go through the process, uh, the initial, uh, you know, first dates, shall we say, with proficient, and then there's a dark period where you don't hear anything. Then they come back and, and sort of bed in and, and dig in. Did you have other potential buyers at the table or were you exclusive with Proficient? Well, what happens typically in these processes, and this wasn't really uh, materially different, is you get some sense you know, from their side what they think they're willing to uh, pay. And... Um, and, and, and then you need to go into a due, if that seems okay and worth further discussion, um, you go into a due diligence period. And so, um, you know, you sign a thing called a no shop. So you're effectively off the market once you sign that. And you signed that in your case? Uh, yeah. I mean, that was basically, um, you know, something you do because now both parties need to invest you know, a fair amount of money and resources and uh yeah yeah and so when when you I, i'm always curious about this did they try to get you to share your number with them or did they come to you with a number without any sense of what you thought the business what you, i mean did you have to kind of share your cards as, as it relates to what you thought the company was worth or were you were you did you put put it back onto them to say no you come to me with what you think it's worth so yeah, it, it's going to be hard for me to share the specifics of how the transaction negotiation 
process unfolded. So what I can say is this, is that my advice to other entrepreneurs would be, um, uh, you know, just to, to get the other party to put a number forward first. Um, uh, you know, there's, um, um, you know, the last thing you want to do is, is A, put forth a number which, you know, is, is silly, so they walk away when you would have been perfectly willing to take something less, or B, uh, uh, actually, um, you know, um, put out a number which is lower than they were willing to offer, and I say, okay, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean, uh, or worse, still lower than they were willing to offer, and they hear your number, and they realize, oh, well, we could probably negotiate down from there. Yeah. Um, I, so there's, there's Good not, advice, yeah. for sure. I guess a lot of a lot of um, a lot of savvy buyers kind of know that, and and they sort of try to pry a number out of the the entrepreneur, and of course that puts a ceiling on onto which their business will ever be worth. So it's it's good advice for sure. Uh, let's take it out of the realm then, um, because I I know that the the acquisition itself was was you know uh, written up in a confidentiality agreement, so we can't get too specific about your deal. But I'm thinking in terms of advice you might give to, in particular, other service company owners, because again, there, 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 there aren't as many assets per, per se in a traditional sense, at least hard assets. Um, as, as you think about an earnout or a period of, of transition where you've sold the company, but you, um, but you continue to kind of work there, um, what do you think is a reasonable expectation for a service company owner to to have vis-a-vis the proportion of their deal which would be um, kind of paid in cash on closing versus uh, at risk if you will on some sort of earnout or future payment that that would be at risk associated with future targets yeah uh, well and again as you said for clarity I'm not going to reference anything that inv- happened in our particular deal but uh, for me, you know, the advice I would give to entrepreneurs is uh, other entrepreneurs, services business uh, people. Um, you know, obviously, you like to get as much upfront as you possibly can, uh, and that's uh, um, um, you know a uh, um, easier said than done, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? But I mean, if if you're long- having a if we're having a beer and I say, Eric, you know, they, they say my business is worth, I'm just going to throw out a number. They say my business is worth 10 million bucks. What, what proportion of that do you think I should ask for up front? I mean, should I ask for 3 million up front, 8 million up front? It, like, do you know what I mean? Like, is, it'd be helpful to give folks a frame of reference of what's realistic in a service company. Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's not uncommon that uh, it could well could range anywhere between half the deal to um, you know maybe twenty percent or ten percent or something as a as a, as an earnout, but um, uh, it, it really depends on a lot of factors, right? So that's what makes the question difficult to answer. Um, with a, a single thing, because if basically, uh, you, you know, there aren't 
those extra aspects of value or you don't have some aspect of what you're doing that's strategic to the buyer, then they're, they're, the way they're going to view the deal is different, right? So if you have, let's say you have technology in the company that the buyer really wants, and even though you're a services company, you're technology-enabled services company, and if you get extremely valuable technology that they can leverage, then your negotiating position changes significantly. Does that make sense? So It does. It does. Um, yeah. And I mean, and I've even seen wild ass things that not involving us that people put out there where it was more than 50% that they wanted on earn out. And, you know, that's just, it's like, that's scary, right? What would you, what advice would you give an entrepreneur who is evaluating an earn out agreement that is trying to, you know, if it's a service business, clearly there's likely to be an earn out. Uh, what sort of gotchas or tips and tricks could you, could you, or, or landmines more accurately, could you um, help other entrepreneurs sort of avoid as they read through an earnout uh, contract? Well, I think the big thing really is do you think it's achievable? Right. And, you know, you've been running your business for however many years you've been running it. You, you know, uh, uh, you know, how it's grown historically, you know, how, uh, um, you know, what your pipeline and backlog look like, you know, uh, what, uh, have reasons, that, reasonable guesses you can make about how it might grow in the coming year. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I think the, just, just look at it. Do you think you can do it? Uh, and, and then, you know, what are the things that you need to have under your control to be able to do it, uh, is another really good thing to think about. Um, and, and also let's back up the process a little bit while you're, you know, making your sales pitch for how incredible your company is, make sure you don't set expectations where your earnout's going to kill you. Be realistic and, you know, don't, don't inflate your prospects when you're, you know, talking up the sales price, right? Because if you do, and then you have a large percentage in the earn out and they, they simply listen to you and say, okay, you said you're going to do this in the next year. So do it and you'll get your earn out. And then, guess, you, and then you look at it and go, damn, that's a, that's a big number. But yeah. You don't want to have that happening. I mean, I guess a lot of people would look at an earnout deal and they would agree to it because of what the buyer is promising in the way of additional salespeople, additional distribution, additional office. And what they're, they're going to say, look, t together, one plus one equals three. With our resources as your buyer, we're going to take on the world and, and, and these sales targets will become inconsequential or, or tiny relative to what we achieve. So that's going to be the acquirer's pitch, right? How do you... Yeah. How would you think about their pitch? Uh, because because looking at it historically is what your company's got done. They might look, yeah, but you've been an independent company, self-capitalized. I mean, we're going to bring massive resources to the table. How, how would you um, tease apart their promises? Yeah, well, what are the teeth behind them in the asset purchase agreement? If they're, you know... Uh, uh, if you're supposed to be getting all this access to salespeople, 
and getting all this access to other kinds of resources that are going to create um, drivers for growth for your business. And they're basing the earnout on that. Then the question starts becoming, okay, let's define that somewhat because my compensation is dependent on what you've just told me. So let's get in there and define, you know, what are you committing? You're making me commit my earn out to something that's dependent on something that you say you're going to give me. So let's see it in writing. And do you think it's possible to paper that, um, you know, we've all seen deals where there is a legal commitment to do X and both sides or either side just says, yeah, it's in writing, but, you know, sue me. You know, you know, I'll last you out. I'll, 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 uh, I'll outlast you in court. Is there any way to protect against that reaction from the acquirer? Actually, the best way to protect against that is put the effort in uh, before you sign anything to understand how the relationship is likely to work by the time you spend with the buyer. Um, it's not a perfect science, but is the culture fit right? Are the people right? How genuine do they seem? Um, um, uh, you know, I'm going. I'm telling people to go a little bit with their gut here, right? Because there is, you can never protect everything perfectly in a document. You know, a contract. You can't. You 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 should do the due diligence and take the effort to, um, uh, you know. Uh, be sensible about things and document things that are worth documenting. But if somebody's going to act in bad faith on the other end um, and, and they're determined enough, they uh, can find a way to make it very difficult for you to do anything or too expensive for you to do anything. Um, you, you got to believe in the relationships. When you look back, I, I realize the proficient deal is relatively new. What's your biggest regret in in selling your company? Do, do you have a, any sort of regrets, uh, things you might do differently? That, that's an interesting question because, uh, you know, for, uh, um, you know, 10 years of my career, my primary focus has been Stone Temple Consulting. Uh, I'm, I'm now... Uh, uh, general manager of a group within Proficient, um, uh, and um, uh, you know um, my uh, uh, t-shirts or shirts that I'll be wearing if I'm speaking at conferences will say Proficient on them instead of Stone Temple. Uh, my business cards will say Proficient. So you know, leaving the Stone Temple brand behind, and uh, you could imagine that that might come with a great deal of angst. Um, but to be honest, uh, I, um, I'm actually quite comfortable with it. Um, you know, I, I did talk about, you know, investing the time and spending the time with the people, uh, and getting the feeling for what the relationships are going to be like. And, um, we, Beth and I both worked hard at that, um, uh, you know, pre signing the deal. Um, and, um, and it still feels right after the deal. Um, so, 
um, which is a great thing. Um, so, you know, regrets, um, um, not having better anticipated how much work there would be <laughs> in the first two weeks. Um, Do you mean during the diligence process? No, I mean, after the deal signed, we're, we're, you know, it signed on July 16th. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's the amount of work in terms of switching systems uh, over and I'm not even bearing the brunt of it by any means, but, uh, it's, um, incredibly, um, um, arduous amount of things, uh, that, um, my English here is bad at the moment. Sorry about that. But the amount of stuff we have to do is... How did you tell your How did you tell your seventy employees that you'd sold a business? Uh, we called an all hands meeting, and I stood up, and the first sentence was uh, that Stone Temple had been acquired by a company called Proficient. Um, it uh, there was no point in doing some long, drawn out way of doing it. By the way, a lot was said after that. I'll get to that in a moment. But the, the reality is the news is the news. And dancing around it isn't going to help anybody. And to be honest, there was a fair amount of shock in the room because we had built the company, which I think uh, the great majority of the employees have uh, loved uh, during the time of its existence. Um, but you can't help the shock. You have to give them the news and then you follow as quickly as you can with, um, uh, you know, the, you know, you have your jobs, um, um, and you know, it's going to be business as usual. And the reason why we felt this was a great match is cultural fit, strategic, uh, uh we're a strategic acquisition, the exact words of, of Jeffrey Davis, Proficient CEO, are we excited to continue to strengthen our digital capabilities with the strategic acquisition of Stone Temple? And that, you know, that's the sentiment that we felt all through the whole process. And so I communicated that, but people are shocked. It's going to take a while for them to absorb it and begin to feel that it might be okay. And the most important thing I did during that conversation and Beth did the same thing because she spoke for a little bit after I did, was you don't try to instantly fix it. You can't. You have to let them absorb it a little bit, um, start getting them some exposure to what it means, exposure to other people in the company, in the new company, um, and, and let them come to their own conclusion, whether it's okay or, or not, and obviously answer any questions they have and all that, but it's, it's not, uh, an easy or simple thing to do. And it's certainly not easy for the people involved who, um, you know, we, we did, we worked very hard to, to take care of them. Um, but you know, it's a big piece of news to take down. That it is. And, and I wonder, I mean, I, I guess, I apologize for bouncing around a little bit, but I, I'd be remiss in not asking, were you, 
as you look back at the deal in hindsight, um, do you feel like you made the right decision in negotiating exclusively with Proficient? Or was there, is there any part of you that looks back and says, mm, maybe I should have, I should have perhaps shopped this a little bit with maybe two or three other people at the table? Do, do you, because that would be the classic way of thinking. Do, do you, as you look back now, think that was the right decision or, or, or would you maybe do that differently? Well, so yeah, like manage some grand and glorious auction of some sort, right? Or at least uh, some tension, at least some tension yeah. with maybe one other sort of party. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I think, you know, getting to a period of a no shop is inevitable. Mm -hmm. it, um, so at least in my experience and opinion, um, uh, I, I don't. Uh, for this kind of acquisition, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, you know, it's not like I'm, I don't have 20 of these under my belt, <laughs> right? But, uh, you know, at some point, you know, um, the other side's going to spend a lot of money and they want to know that it's not going to get yanked out from under them. But prior to that, there's, of course, the opportunity to, um, you know, say I've got, um, uh, you know, other people in the fold and, um, and use that to impact the sales price. Um, uh, and, um, yeah. Um, and, and that I do think is wise to do just be advised that service company acquisitions, buyers aren't necessarily, you, you might not find four buyers who are ready to act at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you can't assume that that's the case. And you can also overplay your hand if you threaten too aggressively, they might just walk. Yeah, absolutely. So were you, were you worried about that at all? Well, I mean, always. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, again, the rhythm for this particular situation felt good from the very beginning, but you know, you're nervous until it's done. And I mean, quite frankly, uh, uh, the Friday before it actually closed, uh, uh, you know, I had a couple people congratulate me because the paperwork was basically all done. And, um, you know, for me it was, yeah, whatever. Uh, I'll, I'll think about it more on Monday <laughs> when it's official. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's, that's life. It's like the, the best time to pull out of any deal, any bad deal is any time before you sign it. So true. So true. So, you know, it doesn't matter that it might be perceived as good faith on the other end. If you've bad faith on the other end, if you've suddenly realized it's a bad deal, you should pull out. You know, yeah. it's, it's, that's life. And you don't know if the other party is going to have that sense, uh, like at the 23rd hour and 59th minute and suddenly go, eh, maybe not such a good idea. And I'll believe it when the wire hits my bank account. Yeah. Speaking of the wire, uh, did did you indulge in any sort of trophy? Did did you and Beth, you know, are you or or did you buy anything to sort of celebrate the the win? So, um, not yet, but I I will be doing that. Uh, let me, uh, and I'll tell you what it is. So first of all, I, I've owned uh, a, a Tesla since 2013. 
so I have one that's almost six years old. Um, but I plan um, uh, to buy one of the newer ones uh, um, here in the, hopefully before year's end. So that's you gonna uh, get a, a model three, an S, an X. What's your plan? Uh, probably uh, uh, an S uh, for sure. I have an S now, uh, and I actually plan to keep it. Uh, but I'm going to buy, uh, the newer one. Um, and even though I'm not really someone who drives particularly fast, I don't drive slow, but I'm not like, uh, not so about fast. I'm going to buy the one that goes zero to 60 in two and a half seconds. <laughs> That's awesome. The, the, the 100 PD, I think it is or something yeah, like that. You, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It. Well, that's a great trophy, and you and Beth will, will, I'm sure, love that and have fond memories of this deal. Hey, listen, I really appreciate you spending the time and, and sharing the story with us, Eric. If people want to reach out and say hi uh, on social, or do you want to point them to a website, or where can people sort of reach out to you and learn a little bit more about you, the company, that kind of stuff? So, uh, well, the uh, existing Stone Temple Consulting website is stonetemple.com. Um, uh, for proficient, they can go to either proficient.com. That's P E R F I C I E N T.com or proficientdigital.com, which is where we fit in the overall portfolio. Uh, proficient is actually a half billion dollar public, uh, consulting firm, uh, with a great ticker symbol, by the way, it's the word profit without the vowels. So P R F T, hmm. um, it's actually an abbreviation of proficient, but it also happens to be the word profit without the vowels, which I love about it. Um, but uh, those places are good. And, you know, I'm active on Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle, at least for the time being, is still uh, at Stone Temple. Um, uh, I'm going to see if I can transfer that over to at Eric Inga, but, you know, uh, I don't know if I can or not. So that's where I am for now. Well, Eric, it's a great, uh, great to meet you. Enjoy the Tesla. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.